Before the disciples of Jesus were ever called Christians, they were called followers of the way. Before Christianity became the label for the one true religion, it was simply called the way. Acts 9 verse 2 describes Saul's persecution of the church, saying, And Saul desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Likewise, in Acts 19.23, it says, There arose no small stir about that way. And Paul says later in Acts 22.4, I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. If the early disciples were called followers of the way, uh, the next logical question to ask is, well, uh, where does this way lead to? Why is it called the way? What does it mean to follow the way? Where is this way going? It is these kinds of questions that the gospel of Mark wants to both provoke and answer for us. We remember how the opening verses of Mark's gospel began. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so according uh, to Mark, the whole ministry of Jesus is a showing forth of the way of the Lord. And now for the very first time in this gospel, Jesus begins to tell us where this way leads. It leads to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. If you are going to follow Jesus, if you would become worthy of the name follower of the way, well then you must come to grips with the fact that this path that you are on is a path of suffering unto death. It is a path of being rejected by the world and dying to that world. As Paul says in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. This is the way. You want to be a Christian. If you want to follow Jesus, then you must resolve in your heart that the way to destruction is very easy and very broad, Matthew 7. But the way to eternal life is hard and narrow. This is the way of the Lord, and you can see why many people choose not to follow it. You can see why many people begin, but then turn back or turn aside. They never make it all the way. So uh, what I hope to do in this sermon is just give you a little encouragement. Encouragement to keep walking in the way of the Lord, but especially to not be afraid of suffering and death. Uh, Not necessarily as if you're going to die a martyr for the faith, though perhaps you may be granted that, but to simply embrace and endure joyfully whatever cross God is giving you to carry. Whatever pain, whatever pressure, whatever toilsome difficulty is presently afflicting you, God wants you to carry that cross joyfully. This is the way of the Lord. This is what it means to be a Christian. At times, It is very hard. It is painful. It is ugly. 
But if you know what is waiting for you at the end of the journey, resurrection and eternal life, well, then joy can be had and it must be had along the way. This is the moment, our text in Mark's gospel, where everything takes a turn. We've reached the very heart and center of the book. This is the beginning of Christ's revelation of where the way of the Lord leads. And if we are going to walk with Jesus all the way, all the way there, well, then we need to catch what the disciples miss. And that's my hope for this sermon. So uh, let us begin by uh, looking at an outline or division of the text. There are two basic sections here. In verses 22 to 26, Jesus heals a man in two stages. And then in verses 27 to 33, Jesus reveals where the way of the Lord leads. Together, uh, these two sections bring to a conclusion a discussion that we were looking at prior about uh, bread and leaven. What is bread? What is leaven? Uh, By now, Jesus has fed the 5,000. He has fed the 4,000. But the disciples are still confused about the meaning of those miraculous feedings. Uh, Last week, we saw that the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod is their false doctrine and hypocrisy. And here now, Jesus gives the disciples the true leaven, the true leaven of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 13, 33, Jesus gives a parable saying this, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. Well, here Jesus is giving us the contents of that leaven, that little bit of yeast that is going to leaven the whole loaf. The contents of the leaven of Christ is that he must suffer and die and rise again. Christ must suffer and die and rise again. That message is going to transform the whole loaf. It is the message that remakes, reforms, and renews the whole world. We are a part of that loaf being leavened. So with that in mind, let us start by looking at verses 22 to 26, this first section here, this healing. It says, And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. This is the second time that Jesus has healed a man by using his own saliva. In Mark 7, he healed a deaf, mute man by spitting and touching the man's tongue. And here he heals a man by just directly spitting on his eyes and then touching him. Uh, Why is this? Well, uh, it's not obvious why Jesus spits on this man's eyes. And anytime someone spits on someone else, both Uh, now presently, but also in the Old Testament, uh, it's a sign of shame and uncleanness. We typically don't spit on the people we love. I love you, right? Uh, At least I've I've never experienced that. So uh, it's not obvious why. Uh, I'll give you a few examples of of spit in the Old Testament. There's not a lot of instances of this, uh, but when we see it, it's, it's not a sign of love. Uh, Leviticus 15, 8 says, uh, If he who has the discharge spits on him who is clean, then the man who is clean shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. So 
So you see spit. Uh, so someone who's unclean, they spit on you. They get some of their uncleanness on you. Now you're unclean, and you've got to wash your clothes and bathe. So uh, this is something you'd probably do uh, naturally. We would do this naturally. But in the ceremonial law, this is what God commands. Uh, in Numbers 12, verse 14, God says to Moses about Miriam, uh, Moses' sister, after she rebelled, he says the following. Uh, the Lord said unto Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut out from the camp seven days, and after that, let her be received in again. So, uh, spitting on someone in our time in the Old Testament makes that person at least ceremonially unclean, which means you can't go into uh, the the tabernacle, the sanctuary area. And yet here we see uh, Jesus spitting on someone and making them clean, healthy, whole. Uh, We've seen this theme already with him healing the leper and the woman with the flow of blood. Wherever Jesus goes, he kind of turns the world upside down. He spreads holiness and uh, cleanliness, and here the very thing that we would expect to defile a person, someone's spit, is the very thing God uses to heal and cleanse. So who, who is this man that has the ability to actually clean people with their saliva? So Jesus spits on this man's eyes. He touches him, and then he asks the man what he sees. Uh, This is the only time Jesus does this. He he asks him, uh, you know, did it work? (laughs) Uh, And uh, why does Jesus do this? Uh, Some commentators, uh, some very silly commentators, think that, uh, you know, Jesus' power was low, (laughs) which is why he had to do it twice. You'll see uh, liberal commentators saying that he's, um, you know, just manipulating the situation because they, they deny that miracles can happen. So th- there are many silly commentators, but we are not of those sort. Uh, there's clearly a purpose for this. Jesus is not uh, low on divine power in, in this moment. He doesn't need, need a boost. Why does he do this? Well, we should already know, because we've been studying this gospel for so long, that Jesus' miracles are living parables. If he does something, and, and Mark draws our attention to it, there must be something for us to learn from it. And Mark is going to give us a hint in the right interpretive direction. This entire middle section of Mark's gospel that runs from our verse until the end of chapter 10 is bookended by two healings of a blind man. So here's the first blind man who's healed, and then it's going to end with blind Bartimaeus being healed. And then in between, Jesus is going to say three times that he is going to go to Jerusalem, suffer, die, and rise again. And we have this cycle. This happens three times, and it's bookended by these two healings. So our text is the first of these three cycles where Jesus plainly and openly tells them the future. Hey guys, hey disciples, I'm going to suffer and die and rise again. And yet we're going to see every time he just tells them this very plainly. It's not a parable. It's like the literal future, the literal truth. And the disciples, they don't understand. You think, Maybe with the riddles, the seed, and the lamp, and the light, and the multiplying of the loaves, maybe we can forgive the disciples for not understanding that. I mean, it's hard for us to understand it. We have to study and and meditate upon it. But Jesus is just going to tell them openly, it says, and plainly, what is going to happen to him. And yet the disciples, they somehow does not compute. It's quite odd. So uh, they don't understand what that means. So Think about the blind man. Who does this blind man uh, represent? Well, he is an analogy for 
the disciples. And we remember the disciples are themselves an analogy, a picture of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's uh, who they represent, the new Israel. So what does this man see? Uh, In verse 24, he says, I see men as trees walking. It's as if he went into a middle earth for a moment. He sees ants walking around. He sees men as trees walking. What is the significance of this? Well, at the very least, at the very least, it means that things are blurry. He only has partial vision, and therefore he needs Jesus to touch him again. This is exactly what Jesus does. Verse 25, after that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored and saw every man clearly. So that's the miracle. That's the living parable. And then in verses 27 to 33, I think we are given what the parable signifies. So starting in verse 27, And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others, one of the prophets. And Jesus said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is the million-dollar question. This is the question by which every person who hears the gospel is going to be judged. Who do you say that Jesus is? This is also a question to which Mark has given us the answer in the very first line of this book. Remember how the book begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. So who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? How you answer that by your confession and belief and manner of life is going to determine everything. Uh, C.S. Lewis famously put in Mere Christianity that uh, the Gospels present us with a trilemma. Uh, If you read the Gospels honestly, you are forced to one of three conclusions. Jesus is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is Lord. Jesus is either lying when he says that he is God, or he is insane for thinking that he is God, or he is God. To quote uh, Lewis directly, it says, you can shut up Uh, You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, he did not intend to. So who do you say Jesus is? Jesus asks his disciples this question, and then Peter, uh, speaking on behalf of the disciples, confesses, thou art the Christ. Thou art the Christ. Um, Is this the right answer? Well, yes. The disciples can see that Jesus is the Christ. But although that is the correct answer, those are the right words to say, uh, they do not understand yet what it means to be the Christ. They do not understand what is prophesied in the Old Testament about the Christ. If Jesus is the Christ, And he is, well, there are certain things he must do. And that is what Peter and the disciples do not yet see. Their vision is blurry. They do not see all things clearly. Uh, This is demonstrated by what happens in the next few verses. So continuing, verse 29, And Peter answered and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And Jesus charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. 
But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. So notice how quickly this scene shifts. Uh, We went from kind of a high point, a hooray, the disciples finally get it, thou art the Christ, to uh, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Okay, all in just a few moments. What is going on here? Well, uh, this is what that two-stage healing of the blind man is intended to illustrate. Uh, The disciples recognize that Jesus is the Christ, good on them. And they see that Jesus is going to die, right? He, he tells them he's going to die. They see this, but their vision is blurry. They see men as trees walking. They see men like Jesus. They see men like themselves carrying a cross, a tree on their back, walking on the way to Jerusalem. And it is as if they cannot accept that this is where the way of the Lord leads, How can we, following the Christ, be men as trees walking to Jerusalem to die? That is their conundrum. That is what they cannot understand. Uh, Perhaps they are confused because doesn't Psalm 1 say that the blessed man is the man who is like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit fruit in in its season, its leaf does not wither whatsoever he does prospers. The ungodly are not so. So how then can the Christ, the most blessed one, how can the Son of Man be someone who suffers and dies? Isn't suffering and death the destination of the ungodly? Have you ever read the Old Testament? Well, you can see why this is a hard teaching for the disciples to accept based on their expectations. They, like the Jews and like even the Jews of this day who deny that Jesus is the Christ, they had high hopes for what uh, the Christ was going to be, for what being called to follow the Christ meant. Think about the disciples. They have left everything behind. They went all in on this venture because they believed it would somehow be better than what they had before. No one uh, voluntarily leaves a good job and situation behind unless he believes he can find something better. This was the disciples, and so now the disciples are confused. Wait a minute. This is not what we signed up for. If Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the promised Davidic king, well, then he should just ride to Jerusalem or fly and clean house. He should use his omnipotent power to bring in the kingdom of God, to establish justice. And we'll see later, uh, the disciples are jockeying for position in this kingdom. They want to sit at Jesus' right hand, sit at his left hand. Their idea of the Messiah, of the Christ, is one who simply conquers and takes what is rightfully his. So this is what the disciples expect. It is what they want. And it is also, in a certain sense, what Satan tempts Jesus to do. And this is why Jesus rebukes Peter with those words, Get behind me, Satan. Think about how Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He offered him all the kingdoms of this world if he would only bow down and worship him. Satan thinks he knows what Jesus wants, and he offers him a shortcut to getting it. He offers Jesus a pain-free, death-free way to becoming king of the world. As we said earlier in the exhortation, Satan always offers us a shortcut that is actually a long cut or more accurately, a dead end. It does not belong to Satan to give Jesus anything. 
Jesus is the one, according to his divine nature, who gives Satan his very being and existence. For who can give to the creator anything other than what God has first given him? And so what the disciples are still blind to, what is still blurry to them, is that Jesus must die and rise again, and then here's the part they miss, to make satisfaction for their sins. They don't understand the why part. Satan would love for Jesus to just go in and conquer, because then no forgiveness of sins. We all go to where the devil goes. Satan absolutely hates mankind, and he wants to do anything he can to take as many of us with him. So this is what the disciples miss. The purpose for Jesus dying and rise again, which is to make satisfaction for their sins. How else can atonement be made for the sins of the world? If perfect justice, God's justice, is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, then how can the life of an animal, the blood of bulls and goats and even Passover lambs, how can those animals make satisfaction for human sin? God himself says in Genesis 9, 6, Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Everyone knows, even if they deny it, that an animal is no substitute for a human being. If someone kills your child and then offers you a dog in their place as restitution, uh, that would be highly offensive to say the least. The situation that the human race has been in ever since our fall from grace is that of committing sins worthy of death. As Paul says in Romans 6, 23, the wages, our earnings for our sin is death. So death is what we all deserve for sin. And what the Christ, the Son of Man, came to do is conquer sin, death, and the devil. He came to triumph over the evil that reigns and dwells in our hearts. And this is the conundrum for us. Where does the evil reside? Well, it doesn't reside just in the devil. It's in us. And so we need a way to die. We need a way to die and come back different. This is why Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. We need a way to die and come back. At present, the disciples are short-sighted. They don't see the divine purpose in Jesus' death and it will only be after the resurrection and more fully at Pentecost that they are able to see clearly. So what is the way of the Lord? It is the way of the cross. And it is only by dying on the cross that a man can be crowned with eternal life. Close with just a point of application here. When Jesus rebukes Peter, he says, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. What makes Peter's thinking satanic is that it only thinks about himself and this life here and now. He only savors, thinks, meditates upon, uh, uh, has in his mind the things that be of men. And so despite Peter's true confession, thou art the Christ, Peter's meaning and understanding of that confession is actually false. If by Christ, Peter means 
A king who does not die for his people, but only treads upon his enemies, well, that is only a half-truth at best. That is not the kind of Christ that Jesus is. And so I ask you, I ask us, what kind of Christ do you take Jesus to be? Do you, like the disciples, have false assumptions, false expectations about what following Jesus actually is, about where the way of the Lord leads? Has Satan tricked you like he has tricked much of the church into thinking that being a Christian is actually the broad and easy way? It's the popular thing, and everyone's going to like you if you become a Christian. Has Satan tricked you into that? Have you forgotten that the hard and narrow path, the way of the Lord, is fraught with difficulty? Have you forgotten that when Jesus called you to follow him, he called you to pick up a tree that you will eventually be crucified on? People think that Christianity is somehow like the easy way. (laughs) Despite us being told over and over and over again, it's actually going to be hard. And then when Christianity is hard, people think, this is not what I signed up for. (laughs) What religion were you converted to? In what ways have you, your household, your children, been deceived by the serpent? In what ways do you only see men as trees walking? The nature of sin is to be short-sighted. Sin is always short-sighted. The devil always tries to make obedience to God seem impossible and unsavory and the, and the reward of obedience hardly worth it. But what Jesus comes to reveal in the gospel is that there is no other way to salvation. There's no other way to happiness, no other way to the Father's house except through him. Jesus is the way of the Lord. And the pain and suffering and cross of this life is in the apostles' words, not worth comparing to the glory that is to come, the glory that is to be revealed in us. That is the eternal glory that you must fix your eyes upon if you would carry the cross joyfully and make it all the way. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.